Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's, uh, to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then uh, to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do this? Uh, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, uh, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached amongst you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote, to you, wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Thank you, Carl. Well, it's uh, nice that uh, at least some people could make it on a long weekend. You know, I was a bit worried that um, everyone would stay at home and listen to uh, the classic FM, Classic 100. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brock and before. 
uh, awesome. It's a four-day countdown of Renaissance, early music, Baroque music, fantastic. Great interview yesterday with a racket player. Uh, <laughs> racket? It's an old, it's an old school early bassoon. So I don't know. Have you ever heard the joke? Um, what's the definition of a miracle? Two double reeds playing the same note. You know. Uh, so anyway, that's a uh, <laughs> that's, that's a music joke. Fiona gets it. Uh, anyway, on to more serious things. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask for your blessing, that you'd pour out your spirit on us, that as we read your words through Paul, that you would speak to us and that we would hear you and receive your words and trust in Jesus uh, and obey him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, In the world of business and bureaucracy, one of the key ideas that goes around and, you know, the training courses that keep coming up year after year is about the issue of conflict management. Conflict uh, resolution is everywhere. There are books on it. There are training courses. There are departments in organisations dedicated to it. Uh, When I was uh, working uh, for the public service, the HR department, you know, if you had a problem with someone, you could go there and they'd help you sort it out. It might just be that they didn't keep their desk tidy uh, and they'd help you work through the, uh, the conflict resolution. Well, 2 Corinthians is a letter about conflict resolution. Uh, it might be nice for us to pretend that those things only need to happen in the business world and in the public service, but not in the church, But the Bible will never let us think that, even for a moment. It seems that uh, the circumstances in which Paul wrote this letter are that a year or so before he wrote it, the relationship between him and this church which he founded, this Corinthian church, that relationship had deteriorated. He'd made a painful visit to them. Uh, He'd sent them a painful letter along with Titus. He tried to sort things out. Uh, And to some extent, they had been sorted out. You get hints of that as we go through the letter. But there are still clearly things that need to be resolved. And in this letter, Paul is seeking to sort of once and for all bring to a resolution the difficulties and the distresses between him and the Corinthian church. So he begins here by addressing a criticism about that they've made about him, about his change of plans. He'd planned to visit them twice, so he'd planned to visit them once on his way past Corinth to Macedonia, and once he'd done his stuff in Macedonia, he'd hoped to come uh, past Corinth on the way again and to minister to them. But that hadn't happened. That, that had been his plan, but that hadn't happened, and now the Corinthians are upset with him. And so he begins to defend his ministry and he begins in verse 12 uh, of chapter 1 by saying, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. So the Corinthians think that Paul and Timothy have been dishonest and deceptive. But Paul and Timothy write that they were not dishonest and deceptive, but they were holy and sincere. 
The Corinthians think that Paul has been saying things between the lines, that his letters are not quite telling the whole truth, that there's kind of a subtext there. But he protests in verse 13, we don't write anything to you that you cannot read or understand. That is, what we mean to say is on the page. You can read it and you can understand it. There's, there's no hidden meaning. Someone sends you a one-line email, uh, you know, can you help me move house, whatever it might be. And instead of taking the email for what it is, a request for help, you invent a backstory. This person doesn't like me. They're sending me the email because they think I'm lazy and they're angry with me for the thing that I said the other day. And the reason that they're asking me is uh, because they're trying to uh, prod me and poke me and uh, you know, get me annoyed at them. None of that's in the email. The email just says, can you come and help me move house? But we invent words between the lines, don't we? That's what the Corinthians were doing. It's so easy to do. That's what they were doing, and Paul says, no, what I wrote is exactly what I meant. There's no subtext there. Everything that I meant to say is on the page. So why did he change his mind then? It's not because he was insincere. It's not because there was a hidden subtext. Is it because he's unreliable? Is it because he's blown about by every kind of women fancy? The weather in Corinth didn't look very good. He decided not to go. Is it because he makes his plans in a worldly way, saying yes to one thing and then the next moment saying no? Is he kind of uh, of the FOMO generation, fear of missing out? Something better had come up in uh, Galatia and he decided to go past Corinth? Starbo, subject to a better offer? Why didn't Paul go to Corinth? He says it was to spare them. Look at verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. He didn't go to spare them. He thought his presence among them would be too painful. And so he thought it would be better to write a letter instead. But what the Corinthians do is read into Paul's actions the worst possible motivation. He didn't come, and they think it's because Paul's insincere, not saying what he meant, and unreliable. And the truth of the matter is that the reason he didn't go was because he was loving and kind. The danger that the Corinthians face is the same danger I think that we face. That is, that when we don't receive the love from people that we expect or that we want or the ministry from people that we expect or that we want, we so easily ascribe to them the worst possible motives. They're unloving. They're unkind. They're lazy. When often the truth of the matter is that 
They've thought very carefully about the best way to do things. And it's just not what we expect. I remember once having a meeting about uh, a potential candidate for ministry. Uh, and everyone said, well, you know, so, well, someone said, um, I just feel uneasy. I feel uneasy about this person. You know, I'm just not sure that they're going to put in uh, the amount of energy that we require them to put in. And in the end, they didn't. But, you know, do you know, the reason was it wasn't because they were a vacillating, wayward, lazy person, but because they had systemic long-term health issues that nobody knew about. It's so easy, isn't it, to read into people's actions. And here's the mistake. This is the mistake. The mistake comes when we say to ourselves, I'm such a great judge of character. I know what their motivations are. You know, I, can, I, can, I can read people. It's a, <laughs> let me tell you, any conversation that starts that way never ends well. Now, we don't know, and we have to keep telling ourselves what love believes all things. Love believes the best motivations until proved otherwise. Paul didn't change his plans because he was full of, uh, his letters were full of subtext. Uh, it wasn't because he was insincere. It wasn't because he was unreliable. It was, for, it was because he loved the Corinthians. It was, in fact, for the sake of the gospel. So he goes on to say that even though his plans might have changed, his message hasn't. And that message that he has preached is guaranteed by God. All God's promises in Jesus are yes. And God has confirmed our possession of those promises to us through the seal of the Holy Spirit. Paul's plans might change, but the gospel doesn't. And if Paul stayed away, it wasn't because he was a yes and no man, but it was because he was a yes man, a man who always said yes to the gospel. He'd originally planned to go to Corinth for the sake of the gospel, and in the end when he stayed away, it was also for the sake of the gospel. The gospel trumped his plans. So it's not that he's yes and no, but he's yes to what is in the best interests of the gospel. And if that means changing his plans and his reputation suffering, taking a hit, then so be it. You see, I think it's attractive for us to think that sticking to our plans will always be the best course of action, that always keeping our word is the most important thing. But actually that's not as important as working for the sake of the gospel. If you've made a silly promise that would jeopardise the gospel, then you're better off breaking your promise and saying, actually, when I made that promise, I didn't know what I was doing. See, the problem with humans is not just that we don't keep our promises. The problem with human beings is that we make stupid promises that we should never have made in the first, first place. Think of Jephthah in the Old Testament, you know, who vowed that the first thing that came through his door when he returned... Victorious from battle, he would sacrifice to God. And what comes through his door? His own daughter. And instead of saying, well, I've made a stupid vow to God, he killed her. Now, there are more important things than keeping our word because we're fallible people. 
If keeping our word means damaging the gospel, then we ought to take the hit and say, the gospel trumps my best laid plans. Why didn't Paul go to Corinth? He didn't go to Corinth for their sake, for the sake of the gospel, in order to spare them, in order that the gospel might do its work among them. So instead of going then, he'd written this letter. But what was that letter about? That's the second question. The beginning of chapter 2 begins to sketch out the reasons that uh, Paul had for writing and the things that he had written about. So chapter 2, verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. It's not 100% clear from that, but the, what, is, uh, what Paul is saying is that the reason that he wrote to the Corinthian church was to confront their sin. There's not a lot of detail here about what sin he's addressing, but there's another hint in chapter 7, uh, and in particular chapter 7, verse 12, where Paul goes on to talk about more about the reason that he's written to them. And he talks about the one who did wrong, uh, and he talks about the injured party, but beyond that, there's not kind of a great deal of detail. So some people suggest that the, this one particular person who'd done wrong uh, was, is the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You might know that. Uh, there's a, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes about a man in the church who was uh, sleeping with his stepmother, I think it was. And some people think that Paul is still talking about that situation uh, other people suggest that the issue seems to be one person in the church who was a, a vocal, uh, kind of, in vocal opposition to Paul uh, and that he was uh, objecting to Paul's ministry and destabilising Paul's ministry. But the truth is we just don't know. We, it's hard to know exactly what, what's going on. And whatever the precise nature of the sin and the person that he was confronting... What we can say for sure is that for Paul, writing this letter, confronting the sin in the church, was one of the hardest things he'd ever done. Look at the language that he uses uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. He says that he wrote out of great distress, distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. If you've ever had to confront somebody about a sin in their life, you'll know how true that is. Uh, that it's deeply distressing. Uh, it might be confronting the sin uh, in the life of one of your children. So, so you might have to approach them and say, look, this is wrong. You know, there's, there's something going on in your life which is wrong that you need to turn away from. Uh, and if you've ever, ever had to do that, you'll know that that's a distressing thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, and in fact, if it's not distressing and if it's not hard, there's probably something desperately wrong. You know, if it's easy to do that. 
It might uh, not be confronting sin in the life of your, your children. It might, in fact, be confronting sin in the life of your, one of your parents. Uh, or a brother or a sister or a friend. That might be someone in, in a growth group. Paul says that he wrote, out of great distress and great anguish. In fact, he uses the same language here as in the section that we looked at last week. That language that he used to describe the sufferings of Christ overflowing into our lives. So here in this section of of 2 Corinthians, the great suffering and great tribulation that Paul experiences comes from confronting the sin in the Corinthian church. See, I think what Paul is doing is he's deliberately setting the Corinthians up. In chapter 1, he's going, the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives. And those are hard sufferings. We've been hard-pressed on every side in order that the comfort of God might flow from our lives into your lives. And then he gets to the chapter 2 and he says, and do you know what the greatest suffering in our life at the moment is? You. And writing this letter, and sending Titus, and dealing with your sin. See, when we think of hard trials and hard suffering, we think of death and disease and losing our jobs. But the suffering and tribulation that's at the forefront of Paul's mind is the suffering of confronting sin and dealing with sin in the church. I uh, said to someone this past week something that I say a lot, I say to myself, and that is, that we need to realise that while the church is a place of profound love and grace and comfort, the church is also a place of profound pain. And indeed, many of the most profound pains that we will experience in life won't come from outside the church, but they'll come from inside the church. And unless we realise that, we'll never be prepared to live in the church. We'll think that the sole purpose of the church is to make our lives happy. And the sole purpose of our ministry is to make other people's lives happy and our lives happy. But that's not true. The church will always be a painful place because the church is serious about dealing with sin. If you want an easy life... Well, then leave the church and don't be a Christian because people out there don't deal with sin and that makes life easy. You know, if everyone can just do what they want and you never have to confront anyone over sin, well, then everyone can just get on like a house on fire, can't they? But in the church, because the church is serious about dealing with sin, the church will always be, this side of eternity, a place of profound pain and profound difficulty. It cost Jesus his life to sanctify the church and to deal with our sin and to make us holy. Why would we think that it would cost us anything less? Because remember, the sufferings of Christ overflow from his life 
into our life as well. Dealing with sin caused Paul tremendous grief. But notice too that it caused the church grief as well. Verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much caused me grief as he's grieved all of you to some extent. The whole church had been hurt by Paul's letter and by the man's sin. Now it doesn't have to be you dealing with sin or your sin being dealt with for it to be a source of grief, for it to be deep and painful. You just have to be part of that community. If you've been part of a church when sin has had to be dealt with publicly, you'll know that it's painful. I think I can remember every moment in my life where I've been in a church and sin has had to be dealt with publicly. I can remember being very young and sitting in a church. Everyone, everyone always says, oh, the young people don't understand what's going on. I, I, you know, I remember being three and four you know, in primary school and knowing exactly what was going on. Sin was being dealt with. And it's hard. Being part of a church where someone has left their wife or someone's embezzled money, uh, it's painful. Being in part of a church uh, where there's been sexual abuse and that's had to be addressed is deeply painful. And it's important that we prepare ourselves to deal with the grief of sin in the church. Because if we're not prepared emotionally and spiritually to deal with sin in the church, then when we see sin in the church and when it's dealt with, we'll either leave the church because we say, well, the church isn't supposed to be like this. This is too hard. The church is supposed to be a happy place and it's not happy. We'll either leave the church or we'll leave the faith. God promised me that my life would be easy. Where is that written? We need to be prepared to deal with sin in the church because that's the New Testament reality. As a way of putting flesh on this, let me give a a recent example of dealing with sin in this church. Now, it wasn't a major issue, but... A week ago, we had to send a letter to everybody in the church to ask everyone to turn up to church on time as a way of loving each other and a way of loving people who come into the church, visitors who come into the church. Now, that was a painful letter to write. It was a awful one. No one likes doing that kind of thing. It's a painful letter to write. It's a painful letter to receive. Nobody likes to be told. Someone uh, wrote to me, rightly, and said how sad it was that we should have to write to people that they need to turn up on time. They were right to be sad, weren't they? But we shouldn't be surprised that we have to deal with our own sin. Because churches dealing with sin are on every page of the New Testament. And in fact, if we're not a church that deals with sin, then we're probably not a real gospel-centred church anymore. 
Why did Paul change his plans? He changed his plans because he needed to confront sin and it would have been too painful for him to do it in person. So Paul changed his plans, he wrote a letter. It was a painful letter. It was a letter that caused grief. But now the danger is that that grief would turn to bitterness. So verse 6 The punishment inflicted on him, on this person, by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. It appears that what had happened in the Corinthian church was that at first they hadn't wanted to deal with the sin. Paul had said, you need to deal with this. They hadn't done it. Finally, they'd done it, and they'd maybe got a little bit overzealous in dealing with the sin, and now what they were in danger of doing was kind of trampling this person underfoot, crushing them. But Paul says that this man's punishment was sufficient. That is, it had achieved the end for which it was intended. It had brought repentance. The danger for the Corinthians was that they still thought that he needed to suffer a bit more. So they, so they were thinking, well, he has repented. That's great, isn't it? But it might be nice if he just felt the weight of what he'd done a little bit more. You know, it, just, just, it wouldn't hurt him. It might help a little bit in the future if he'd really been uh, flogged over this one. Just a, little bit, just a little bit of excessive sorrow. We cross a line, I think when the purpose of dealing with sin becomes sorrow rather than repentance. So what's the purpose of the punishment? The purpose of the punishment becomes that this person becomes really, really sad. That's wrong. The purpose is so that they would see what they've done and turn away from sin. We take a misunderstanding of the gospel which we apply to our own lives and we kind of foist it on other people. So in our own lives, we think that God can't forgive us until we feel sorry enough. So instead of just confessing our sins and leaving it at the cross, we say, well, what I have to do is I have to flog myself. I have to make myself feel sorry and, and pained. And I have to feel deep grief over this. That's the way to kind of remedy sin for the future. And we take that wrong understanding of the gospel and then we apply it to other people in the church. Well, we can't just forgive them. They need to feel bad about what they've done. Paul says that is a dangerous approach because it gives Satan a foothold to destroy the church. He says, forgive that man in verse 11 so that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. See, that's what Satan wants. Satan wants... The church to be not a place of forgiveness, but a place of excessive sorrow. Not a place that deals with sin in order to find repentance, but a place of punishment in order to crush people and drive them to bitterness. Now God says the goal is not sorrow, but repentance. God says that we should 
comfort the repentant sinner and reaffirm our love for them. God doesn't say, I might add, that we should comfort the sinner. God says we should comfort the sinner who repents and is turned away from sin. Paul again picks up on the language from the passage that we looked at last week. The Corinthians should, verse 7, forgive and comfort him. Remember last week, the comforts of God poured out into our lives overflow into the lives of others. Paul uses that same language. See, one of the key ways that the sufferings uh, and the comforts of God, sorry, the comforts of God overflow out of our lives is in the comfort of forgiveness. God forgives us. And that comfort and that joy is so rich, so abundant, that it flows out of our lives as we forgive others as well. See, if the only comfort that we ever give to people uh, is to people who are sick or people who are bereaved, then we're not a church. We're just a support group. What makes us a church is not comfort for people whose lives are really hard. That's important, but that's not what makes us a church. What makes us a church is comfort for sinners who repent. We've been forgiven. Praise the Lord. And we ought to forgive other people as well. Not grind them into the dust, but let the forgiveness which God so richly pours into our lives, so full and abundant, poured into our lives that it overflows into their lives as well. The Christian life and Christian ministry, the Christian ministry that we all have, are places of grief and forgiveness. Christ was crucified in weakness to deal with our sin and raised by God's power for our comfort. And our lives following Christ will also be lives which deal with sin in weakness and lives which bring forgiveness and comfort through God's power. Let's pray. Dear Lord Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the weakness of Jesus Christ, his pain and suffering and tribulation in confronting our sin and dealing with our sin and binding it up and casting it into the depths of the sea. Lord, thank you that he suffered so that we might be consoled and comforted by your grace and mercy which overflows in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to accept and acknowledge the sufferings of Christ which overflow into our lives as we deal with sin in our own life, in the lives of our friends and family, of the lives of people in the church. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to accept those difficult realities and the trials and the tribulation that comes with that. So that, Lord, your comfort in forgiving us might overflow from our lives as well into the lives of those around us. 
Lord, where there's sin among us, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to challenge that and to repent. Give us tender hearts, willing hearts. Lord, we ask that where there is sin among us, that you would enable us to repent and that you would enable us to forgive each other and to move on and to cast everything together at the feet of the cross. Lord, we ask it so that this church might be a church of suffering, but chiefly of comfort and consolation. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we have one final song to sing together, which is an 